doors open uh, to page 1179, if you've closed them. Philippians chapter, chapter 127. It's page 1179. And, oh dear, off. And you might be able to find a handout amongst the pieces of paper you were given as well. So if you're the kind of person that takes notes, then... Um, Sorry, I appear to have broken your microphone. (laughs) Sorry. Yes. So anyway, if you are the kind of person that takes notes, then do feel free to scribble away on that. Uh, I don't know. No, it's fine. I think so. Sorry. Right. Well, I wonder, have you ever been in a business or an organization where the members of that organization couldn't agree on their values or their vision for the enterprise. Without common values and vision, uh, it's obvious, isn't it, organizations are doomed to fail. Now, of course, you might think that's pretty obvious, but um, here in London, management consultants are paid millions to help organizations instill common values into their members. Because actually, it's a very hard thing to pull off. Um, Think of how the Conservatives right now are split in their vision over Europe. Uh, David Cameron wants to stay in. Boris Johnson wants out. And that could cause a a big rift in the party, couldn't it? Things are going to be tricky for them going forward. Or think more broadly of the United Kingdom that we live in. Over the last few years, almost half of Scotland uh, decided they wanted out. And our society can feel fractured, can't it? Not just along ethnic lines, but even along political and, and religious lines as well. And so our Prime Minister, David Cameron, came up with the catchphrase, British values. Have you, have you heard that catchphrase before that he talks about? Yeah, Gabriel has. We've got one person who reads the papers. British values that are, is a noble attempt to kind of make the United Kingdom united. And people disagree about how well it's worked. To me, we feel as fractured as we ever have been in some ways. Any kind of common enterprise needs common values and vision. And our churches are no different, of course. But uh, that vision and those values are only going to work if we all, corporately and individually, buy into them. And in this passage, Paul is, as it were, putting before the Philippian church Christian values. And he calls on them all to buy into the vision, so that ultimately they might shine like stars in this crooked and depraved generation. So in a way, Paul was kind of thinking like a prime minister, He calls the Philippians to behave as worthy citizens. Now, we miss that because of the way the NIVs translated it here, but uh, chapter 1, verse 27, when it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the original, it's, it's a word that means behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do you see? David Cameron, eat your heart out. He's saying to these Christians, you need to understand what it means to be a Christian citizen. 
You need Christian values. Now, people in Philippi, well, they might not have liked the sound of this. You see, they were already citizens. Citizens of the greatest empire on earth in its day, the Roman Empire. And the Philippians, as far as we can tell, absolutely loved being Roman citizens. The protection, the privileges they got from being under the emperor's patronage. They were defined by Roman values. But now Paul is saying to the Christians in Philippi, listen up, folks, you are citizens of a different kingdom with different values. And these are the values you need to unite around. And there they are in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1. Only the vision that Paul casts for them might not seem that attractive at first. Take a look at it with me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Did you see the common vision that he sets for them? To strive together for the gospel in the face of opposition. We're to be united in conflict for the sake of the gospel. And to me, that sounds like a lot of hard work. And particularly this thing about opponents. Nobody wants to be opposed, do they? Nobody wants to have an enemy that they have to face. And striving together? I'd rather stay at home and watch telly sometimes on a Sunday evening. Striving for the gospel? Do I really have the energy for that? But also, did you hear the unity of vision here? He wants them to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. There's full buy-in here, you see. Everybody is on the same page. Everybody's striving together as a united team. In fact, did you see as well that Paul wants to see and hear about the Philippians in verse 27? What they have seen and hear about him in verse 30. And if you know anything about the letter to the Philippians, you'll know that at this stage, Paul is in in prison, probably in Rome, under the care of the imperial guard, potentially about to face trial before Caesar and possibly about to lose his life. You see, we're to be united in conflict for Christ, united in the same kind of conflict that Paul had, one team with him. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul uses the image of being uh, gospel partners That's people in business together for the gospel. But now here the image is more military, uh, striving side by side like soldiers contending as one man uh, in the face of opponents, those who oppose you. And he talks about the struggle that he's had in verse 30. Uh, That word can equally be translated conflict. You see, this military image is... um, isn't saying that we're to go about doing a kind of Islamic jihad. It's not saying 
the aim of our struggle, the aim of our conflict, is to bring people to peace with God, isn't it? And yet he uses this image of of conflict in order to say it's going to be hard work, really hard work. There's going to be suffering involved. Um, Well, I wonder how you feel about the vision that Paul sets for the Philippian church and indeed that God sets for us through his words. Sounds scary, maybe. But did you notice that we're to do it without fear as well in verse 28? Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And why not? Because that will then be a clear sign to them, says Paul, that what we're saying about salvation and destruction of those who don't believe is true. Now, Philippi was a town that hadn't known war for a a long time. In fact, I learned this week, it was a retirement town uh, for Roman soldiers in part. Um, People who'd uh, earned their citizenship through fighting in Roman armies and then gone to Philippi to hang up their swords and enjoy the peace and quiet and all the benefits from living in this secure part of the Roman Empire. But now Paul is calling them back to a struggle, calling them back to to conflict. And it might be easy to just say, no thanks, Paul, that's not why I came to Philippi. But did you notice as well that Paul talks about this as though it's a privilege? I think this is one of the most shocking parts of these verses. You see, Caesar had granted Philippi certain exemptions from tax. He granted many of the people in Philippi full citizenship. Okay, well, what had God granted the Philippian Christians? Take a look at it in verse 29. God had granted or gifted to them on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. The word granted conveys this idea that it really is a great thing, a gift. This is very strange, isn't it? A gift to go to war in the face of opposition for the gospel? Well, if you know anything about what Paul thought of Christ, you'll understand why he writes like this. In the letters to the Philippians in chapter 1, he talks about how to live for To live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, He loves living for Christ. He can think of nothing better to do with his life than spend it in the service of Christ. And if you today don't quite feel like that, then hopefully when we come to verses 8 to 11 particularly, that will help you. But before we get there, we need to consider a couple of potential problems that can stop a group, scupper a group, from uniting around a common vision. The first potential problem is that personal agendas get in the way. Think of how the journalists are all accusing Boris Johnson of of choosing to fight to leave Europe in order to further his own political career. Oh, it's a great move, a great way to set himself up to be the next prime minister, they say. Now, of course, uh, this might not be true, But it's not difficult to see how we might be doing that out of mixed motives. 
because of his own personal agenda. And if he is, then his personal agenda has served to cause a rift in the Conservatives. Do you see? Personal selfish agendas can cause a rift in partnerships. The other potential obstacle that can stop everybody buying into the vision here in Philippians is fear of suffering. Fear of suffering. Think of those Philippians living in that peaceful part of the Roman Empire, now being asked to engage in the same struggle that they've seen Paul have, who is in prison, potentially about to die. Very easy to be put off buying into that vision by fear of suffering. It's just not my cup of tea, thanks. So Paul deals with each of these potential problems in order, and in each case his solution is the same. Have a bigger vision of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look together at verses 1 to 11 to begin with. So verses 1 to 11. Christ's humiliation helps us forget our personal agendas. Now, um, I was once a member of a church. I won't tell you which country it was in. uh, Where there are a couple of um, uh, mature women... Uh, gospel-believing women who were both ambitious to be chief flower arranger. And uh, though it might sound quite funny, their rivalry became so bitter, it split the church into two friendship groups that in turn would um, kind of gossip about one another. It threatened the very kind of Uh, fabric of the church. It was madness. And can you see what went wrong? Christ totally fell off their agenda, such that their selfish personal agendas took over. They should have strived together as one woman for the gospel, not against each other for flowers. Madness. But do you see that even in a mature church like In Philippi, personal agendas are a danger. They can wreak havoc on Christian partnership, on this idea of striving together. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, Paul appeals to the Philippians in Christ to be united, um, to have, uh, what is it, to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be one in spirit and one in purpose in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't let your personal selfish agendas get a look in ever in anything in church life, he says. And that is hard, isn't it? So easy to let our own desire to be thought well of, our own desire for status, our own desire for elevation over others. So easy to let it creep in in uh, the way we do church, our reasons for coming here. But did you see that Paul tells us to do the very opposite here? To lower ourselves in order to advance others in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, let me ask you, 
when you meet with other Christians, what do you want to get out of it? Do you want them to grow in their love for Christ? Do you want to care for them in their struggles? Do you want to help them go further and further in their joy in the faith? Do you, do you care about what's going on practically in their lives? What do you want to get out of meeting with them? Or are you here perhaps just for what you can get out of it? To make yourself look great? Perhaps to consume the sermon, such as it is, and then the coffee and maybe some nibbles and then fly off home? What are you here for? Are you here for your own good? Or also for the good of your brothers and sisters? Now, I find this really, really searching, particularly uh, when I'm at church on a Sunday evening after preaching, say, on a Sunday morning. There's a massive temptation just to show my face and then nip off straight after the service because I'm tired and I've been working hard all day and surely it's time for me to have a break now, isn't it? Um, massive temptation not to stick around and care for those who are part of the congregation like I said, today, leaving halfway through the sermon, everyone's going to think terribly of me. But there you go. Um, usually, I'm there on a Sunday evening because I know I have to be for everybody to think well of me because I am, after all, on the staff team of my church. So rare, isn't it, to find a leader who genuinely has no personal agenda who does nothing out of selfish ambition, but always wants to serve others rather than himself. And yet, there is one leader like that. Take a look, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, that is King Jesus. We're about to hear, just before we dive into it, about what goes on in the heart and mind of the king. It's a great privilege what we're about to do. Here it is. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Did you notice King Jesus is the king of kings? God himself. There is no king greater, more powerful, more exalted than the maker of all. And yet, he did not cling to the greatness that is his by rights. He deserves all glory Because he made every single one of us in this room and everything that we have and enjoy all from him. He made it all. And yet he made himself nothing. Nothing. He became a nobody, a servant, a slave. The Most High God, whose mind has seen and known things that are beyond our wildest imagination, beyond our comprehension, in his mind was the thought to serve us. Isn't that incredible? Um, 
He came to service. He obeyed his father's will by humbling himself to death, even death on a cross in verse 8. Now, um, most of you will know that uh, death was the, uh, sorry, crucifixion, death on a cross, was the cruelest form of death in the Roman Empire. Considered, um, well, uh, yeah, citizens were considered too noble to die in that way. Uh, it was a death reserved only for slaves, as Brad mentioned. But the maker of life stooped to even this death for us. It's incredible. And, of course, it shows up the great irony of our ambition, doesn't it? You see, we grasp for supremacy and status when it doesn't really belong to us. Whilst Jesus, who is in nature God, chose not to grasp at what was properly his, but gave it up for us. And doesn't that make us look, well, Faintly ridiculous, actually. We want to be top dog when the one who is truly at the top gave it all up to make himself the lowest of the low for us, to serve us. There was um, a psychologist uh, called Robert Zionch. Have you, have you heard of him, Brad? He was an American guy. No. I told everybody this morning he was famous, then asked if anyone had heard of him, and apparently nobody has heard of him. So there you go, never mind. Uh, maybe he's not that famous. Anyway, he did some work on trying to establish whether it's true or not that people who love each other really start to look like one another. Wives will now be looking around at their bearded husbands, worrying. Um, and he discovered that actually it's true that people who love each other really do, over time, start to take on some of each other's physiology, probably not because their noses have changed shape or anything, but as they share common interests, lead a a kind of common life together, they really do start to take on some of each other's mannerisms, and their mannerisms then start to affect their physiology a bit. You see, we do come to look like the people we love, don't we? And so the question for us all is, do you love this king, Jesus? You see, we're being asked to have his mind, his attitude, in the way that we treat one another. And it's going to be jolly hard unless he is precious to us and we want to be like him. Do you love him? Is he precious to you? And did you see that to God the Father, there is nobody more precious? Did you see that? God's response to Jesus' humbling of himself, his humiliation, it was to exalt him to the highest place, as if to say, look, everybody, there is nobody more precious than this, this Jesus. The willingness to put his own interests aside and to live for the sake of others, that's what God values. It's what God valued in King Jesus And it's what he values in his people. So, will you put your personal selfish agendas to one side and get on with serving one another here? Uh, For the sake of the one who has served you, he's not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done for you a thousand times over. And in fact, obviously, he's asking you to do a lot less. Well, 
Now for the second uh, thing that can scupper Christian partnership. Uh, Suffering. Suffering. And the big thing here that helps us is looking at Christ's exaltation now. Um, I don't know about you guys here, um, but at Euston Church, sometimes our vision of kind of what church life is all about can be a little too dominated by coffee and cake. That's what we think Christian fellowship is really for. We gather on a Sunday to drink good coffee, uh, discuss the merits of the brew, and um, eat whatever baked goods have been provided. Um, but did you see... Um, now, I should probably say, uh, for a start, I don't want to, dis- to disparage sticking around for coffee and cake. For some of us, that would actually be a great step in Christian partnership, wouldn't it? Taking the time to find out how other Christians are doing over coffee and cake. And yet, at the same time... The vision Paul has for church life is not coffee and cake, but conflict, struggle, in verse 30 of chapter 1. Do you remember? Struggle in the face of opposition, as we strive to advance the gospel. And this can be really frightening. For the Philippians, it meant danger of death. Remember, Paul has called them to the same struggle that he's having danger of death. For us, maybe it doesn't quite mean that in London, but it certainly means being thought less of, being mocked as we make known our Christian faith, being misunderstood, perhaps humiliated. For some people, it could even mean losing your jobs, not being preferred for elevation um, at work. Suffering. There will be suffering. And that's why Paul has to remind the Philippians that the great day of Christ's victory, day of Christ, is coming. God exalted him, in verse 9, with the express purpose that Jesus should get the honor he deserves. And so a day will one day come when every knee will bow, verse 10. And verse 11, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. God has given Jesus the highest name, the name that everyone's going to confess, the name Lord, his own divine name of majesty and power. He said a day when every knee will bow. So I'd like you to think just for a moment of the most powerful person that you can. I, I don't know who that would be. Maybe it's the most powerful person in the world out there. Maybe the most powerful person in your life. Maybe a boss. I don't know. And I'd like you now to picture their knee. On the day of Christ, that knee will fall before Jesus. Whether it's Obama's knee or Cameron's knee or Putin's knee, it will fall. Now I'd like you to picture not just the most powerful person you know, but the biggest opponent to the gospel that you can think of. Maybe, again, it's a family member or a boss or a public figure or a historical figure. And again, think of their knee. At the name of Jesus, on the day of Christ, that knee will be hitting the floor. You see, in the face of opposition, when we're tempted to give in to fear and to stop buying into God's vision of gospel partnership, we need to remember Christ's exaltation 
And if we do, then opposition just won't seem so frightening anymore. And then our fear will be able to be redirected to its proper object. Did you see that in verse 12? We're to obey God with, at the end of verse 12, fear and trembling. Um, You see, God is at work in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. He's the one we're to fear. And of course, what is his good purpose? It's the exaltation of his son, that everybody should recognize that he is Lord, which is done partly now through us advancing the gospel and struggling together to do it, and partly will be finished off on the day of Christ, when every knee will bow, like it or not. And can you see as well how Um, This idea of complaining or arguing in verse 14 fits into these verses. These words, um, complaining or arguing, ought to make us think of a moment in the history of Israel uh, when Israel was on the verge of entering the promised land. Uh, The Israelite spies who'd been sent ahead to scout out the opponents, the Canaanites, had come back. And do you remember their report to the people of Israel? The Canaanites are massive. We don't stand a chance. We're going to get slaughtered. In the face of opposition, they were terrified. And so the people started to, well, verse 14, to complain. Why have you brought us here that we should be slaughtered in the wilderness? We should have stayed in Egypt. They began to complain about God and his plans, arguing with Moses about whether they were really heading the direction. They wouldn't buy in to God's plan for them because they were scared. Do you see? And I wonder if you ever feel like that with the task that God has given us to advance the gospel of Christ in the face of opposition. Do you ever think, but how can I? I'm so small, so weak. I don't even have a public platform. Um, I struggle to explain the gospel to my closest family, let alone to strangers. Maybe you feel like you don't have the intellectual capabilities. I don't know. Maybe you just look at the apathy and hostility of other people and think there's no way I can ever do anything about that. It's too hard for me. Maybe you're just scared of the repercussions, the social repercussions, the domestic repercussions, the business repercussions of being open about your faith. I don't know. Maybe we'd just be better focusing on coming to church on a Sunday and then forgetting about the gospel the rest of the week. Wouldn't that be easier? I mean, forget living as as stars in this crooked and depraved generation. Easier just to dim the lights a little bit so that we blend into the darkness. And did you see that that is Paul's big fear for the Philippians in verse 16? He is worried for them in the light of the day of Christ. He doesn't want to get to that day and feel that he's run and labored in vain for them because they failed to keep holding out the word of life with boldness without fear of opposition, and instead fearing God. 
You see, Paul wants them to fix their eyes on Christ's exaltation so that they all get buy-in to the gospel vision, the common vision for Christian citizens. Now, um, I think the best illustration of this point is the way that some premiership football teams are currently going through their managers. Um, I'm really sorry if you're completely turned off by football. It looks like about two-thirds of the rumour in that situation. But um, try and stay with me a little bit. Uh, You might know that um, premiership teams go through their managers really quickly. And that's because everybody wants victory. And so when a manager stops delivering good results, well, they no longer buy into his vision. Are we really heading in the right direction? Um, And it's so interesting, isn't it, that uh, when they first get hired, everybody says yes to his new vision for the team, yes to his values, thinking that's what's going to bring us victory. But slowly over time, as the opponents get victory, well, they get fatigue. They start to question. They start to argue with their manager. And despite the fact they're supposed to be given three or five years to implement their vision, they're out the door before you, before you know it. And, of course, the same thing can happen to us as a gospel team. Are we really heading in the right direction? Is this Jesus we follow really taking us the right way? How come it's so hard? How come it's such a struggle? How come there's such opposition? How come it all feels like hard work? And at moments like that, what we need to remember is the path that he himself has traveled. He was humbled, even to death on a cross. And then he was exalted to the highest place. And in the light of his condescension, his suffering, and his exaltation, a little temporary suffering doesn't seem so bad anymore. The day of Christ is coming. We don't want to have been seen to have failed to live for it, do we? Victory is assured. You might have to face some defeats along the way, but victory is assured. You know, in the light of the day of Christ, Paul could think of nothing more joyful than being poured out as a sacrifice uh, for the sake of others' faith. And did he see that he calls the Philippians to exactly the same thing? He wants to be poured out as a sacrifice on the sacrifice of their faith. We're all to get on with joyfully sacrificing ourselves. Do you see that idea of suffering together there in the same conflict, the same struggle that Paul had? It's a beautiful vision of gospel partnership, all of us striving together as one man for the faith of the gospel. Well, uh, Philippians is a very challenging letter. So um, it may well be that uh, you feel a little bit despondent uh, by tonight's uh, sermon. I don't know. I'm not really sure what you're thinking because I don't know you. Um, But if you do feel despondent, then can I encourage you finally with verse 13? Ultimately, we can be confident of making progress in buying into Paul's vision for church life because of who is at work in us, God himself, to change what we will so that we change what we do. Isn't that an amazing thing? So if you feel like you feel uh, fall really far short of this vision, 
then can I urge you to pray and expect God to answer.